is one of the groups that really believed in this event as we believe in them. Triumph! Live rock and roll should be big and great and fantastic. That's the element of rock and roll that keeps adolescent youth so gonzo about it. That gathering of 14,000 people in a hockey rink is the epitome of what we do. You guys are from Toronto! And they're blowing As a rock fan, bands disappoint you, and Triumph never did that. They were the good guys in an era that was meant for the dirtbags. I was like, how are these guys not as big as Led Zeppelin? And then all of a sudden, that's it. You're listening to the Growing Up Rock Podcast with Stephen Michael and Sonny Hollywood Pooney. Now, crank it up. So, Sonny, we're right around the corner from Halloween, and it's time for our October album series episode. This month, we're actually doing one of the listener picks. So, this year, we said, hey, we're going to do 40th anniversary albums. You picked five, I picked five, and we had the listeners vote and pick two of the albums, and the first one is up today, and I think this is the one, if I'm not mistaken, that got the most amount of votes. Is that correct? Uh, That is incorrect, like you usually are. Uh, This was the (laughs) second most votes. It got 34% of the votes. Uh, There was an album that we're going to do that got 36%. But the two that lost out was Kilroy was here from Styx and Seven and the Ragged Tiger from Duran Duran. So this was the second most. Well, see, there you go. That's why I'm really good at math and good at numbers. And uh, this makes me the perfect candidate. So it's important, like all these episodes we do, to have guests that come on and kind of mediate the conversations and disagreements that Sonny and I have. But this month, we're actually bringing on a couple of guests and a couple of new guests to the podcast that have never been on the podcast. That's hard to do. We've been around now for uh, six years and going over 300 episodes, but these guys are making their debut on the Growing Up Rock podcast, and that is Bob Bender and John Adams, and they do a podcast that is called Two Dudes Talk money and music podcast we'll start with you bob welcome to the podcast so this is not the aa meeting this is not the aa meeting this is just part of the aa meeting oh okay good good i just wanted to make sure i was in the right room thank you uh for having me i i I gotta tell you i don't look forward to too many things because i'm old and i'm cranky and (laughs) just ask my wife but i've actually been looking forward to this one and, and i'm i'm hoping we have a good time and his partner sitting right across from him on my video screen, John Adams. John, welcome to the podcast. Thanks again. Let me echo what Bob said. Uh, been looking forward to this one. Anytime I get a chance to to make a few new friends and talk rock and roll, I'm in. 
Well, here's something you guys didn't know, and I'll share it with you, and this is probably going to be new for the listeners as well, but Sonny and I kicked around a lot of names for our podcast at the beginning, and originally it came down to the Grown Up Rock podcast, but also we were going to do something called Two Idiots Talk Music and Throw Insults at Each Other podcast. What do you guys think of that? I may borrow that if you don't mind for my next podcast series. It, it, it's a good title, but it would be tough to get all that on a business card. The font would have to be really small. Yeah. So. yeah. <laughs> well, it starts out big at the top of the shirt, but by the time you get to throw insults at each other podcast, it's really tiny. It looks like an eye chart. That's it. That's right. <laughs> So, look, this we thought would be fun because Sonny and I are both passionate about music. This is true, but we're also both pretty passionate about money because it costs money to do a podcast, and we certainly don't make money at our podcast. So we figured, hey, let's see if we can have a couple of guys that know about money a little bit more than us, and maybe they can help us make money at our podcast. John, are you? good at doing that? Well, it's a little bit out of my my wheelhouse for my day job. I'm primarily by day a mild-mannered, what we call financial planner slash wealth manager. But within my toolbox, I think I have a few things that can can help with that. And when it comes to actually fine-tuning it to podcast-specific things, Mr. Bender has, how many podcasts are you doing now, Bob? About four? I'm now producing five. Five. So I think uh, between the two of us, we can uh, give you some decent answers and if not, at least point everybody in the right direction. How's that? I think I'd be a good politician. I just kind of dodged that question, but he passed it on to his press secretary. I filibustered. So perfect. Bob's producing five podcasts. Just don't ask him to log on to StreamYard. There you go. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Harsh. Well, look at the time. I got to (laughs) go. And there's your first punch of the night. Good luck. (laughs) So, Bob, you've got a huge music background, and you sent me a bio, and I'm like, this guy's sending me a bio. We're not that fancy. I'm going to let him tell a little bit about himself. But then I started reading your bio, and I'm like, man, this guy actually has done some things. And I was pretty impressed with the bio, and then I started thinking, well, wait a minute, I'm the guy on the Grown Up Rock podcast with the music background. I'm the guy with the tour manager and record label experience. I can't have this idiot on my podcast. He'll make me look bad. And then I started reading through the bio and it's like Ringo Starr and Backstreet Boys. And I'm like, man, this is ridiculous. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about your background in 20 words or less? Wow. Thanks for all that time. I appreciate it. <laughs> all those words, words count, Bob. by the way. All those words count. words. Yeah. So now I'm up to 12. <laughs> you know, I've just, I've been real blessed. I've been one of those guys that has always been in the right place at the right time. I love the music business. I always have. Since I was a teenager, I always wanted to work behind the scenes. Opportunity availed itself. I always jumped on those opportunities. Some of them good, and one or two of them not so good, and one of them pretty much a plane crash. But, you know, it's been a lot of fun. I've traveled the world. I've worked with some amazing artists, not only from a, a touring background, but you said a record label background. And, you know, I've produced, you know, several hundred shows in my life, including a Triumph show, which I think we're going to talk about at some point. And uh, it's just been a blast. I, I've been truly, truly blessed. 
Yeah, that's awesome. I have enjoyed your podcast. I've listened to several episodes now, and I started with my man across the uh, sea there. Sonny was on uh, your podcast as a guest, and it, it gave me the opportunity to hear Sonny and see Sonny in a completely different light because, I mean, any podcast that he or I usually guest on are centered around music and movies and things like that. And that's all we talked, but having Sonny talk about his, his real job and money in a serious context, as opposed to, uh, just, you know, dollars and cents or whatever. Uh, I appreciated that and I enjoyed that episode. And then I, of course, went out and seeked out more episodes as well from you guys. And it's just, I mean, if you're interested in, money and you like it to be splattered with a little bit of music, then I think that's uh, what your podcast is great for. You do have a couple episodes out there that are dedicated to Music Business 101, and I found those interesting as well, having come from that background. So uh, yeah, again, the name of the podcast is Two Dudes Talk Money and Music Podcast, and it's available anywhere you find your fine podcast, correct? That is absolutely correct. You guys put out episodes weekly? We try and get them out weekly when we can. We've kind of had a little bit of a hitch in our giddy-up uh, in the past few weeks, but we're getting back on track. We've got 55, 56 episodes out right now. Uh, so our goal, yes, is to release a new episode every single week. And John and I, what we're doing is we're playing a little catch up right now and getting some episodes recorded. You guys have been around for roughly a year then, correct? Yeah. Yep. Thereabouts. Yeah. And John, I mentioned to you, to you and uh, to both of you when I was on your podcast, man, you guys simplify it to a position where not that I want to call people abnormal, but where a normal person can understand what some of these big words mean. Because mutual funds don't sound like big words, but until you understand what they are, they're completely foreign to, to me, a normal person. One of the things I have to constantly bring up on the podcast, there's two movies I always reference. One of them is Margin Call, and the other one is The Big Short, because although they're dramatic films – they are really good at explaining things really beyond John and my capacity. Uh, in fact, we just did an episode called Summer Shorts. And, uh, you know, we talk about short selling and, and the big shorts. And, and uh, you know, we referenced that movie, The Big Short, a few times. And, yeah, I, I, I got to tell you, Sonny, when John starts talking about things, I really just kind of nod my head and hope I ask intelligent questions. All right, look, I'm going to get to the real question here, and it's been a long debate here on the Grown Up Rock podcast between Hollywood and myself, and uh, I want honest answers and your true thoughts on it, and I'll, I'll call on each of you to give me your thoughts and opinions, but is there a difference between being cheap and being frugal? We'll start with you, John. Yes. I think there's a big difference. Uh, I'd like to think of myself as frugal, but I am not cheap. I, you know, I've raised two daughters and I jokingly refer to them as the debit cards, but they're grown up and out now. And I do think there's a big difference. We all know cheap people, the old, uh, I found over the years, it's safer to talk about people behind their back. And I got a good buddy 
who I consider cheap. And whenever we meet for lunch, we always, when it's my turn to pay, we go to the expensive place. But when it's his turn to pay, we go to the local Mexican restaurant where we can get out of there for 12 bucks. So I think that's the, the distinction I'd like to make with that. How's that? Without naming names. Can I ask a follow-up question? Wait a minute. Let's, <laughs> let's, give, let's give Bob his, his opportunity. Bob, your thoughts on the subject. I'm a cheap bastard. I'll just say that <laughs> right off the top. I'll go eat Mexican food all day long. And, it, and look, I don't lower myself to taking people to Taco Bell. I wouldn't do that. But wherever there's a Mexican buffet or lunch specials, that's where I'm taking you. But wait a minute. So let's go back to the original question. Is there a difference between a cheap and a frugal person? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, but you said you're cheap uh, because you'll go eat $12 Mexican or whatever. That doesn't make you cheap. It depends on the situation. If it's the situation which John just explained, then that's one thing. But a situation of frugality would be, hey, I choose to go eat $12 Mexican versus $50 Fogo de Chao because I'm frugal, right? So there is a difference in the two. I put a price tag on just about everything. And if it's not a value to me, then I'll usually go the frugal route. Sonny, you can ask your, your follow-up question now. Uh, uh, Bob, have you ever not bought wine because it wasn't two for $10? I do have my standards. <laughs> and typically, typically it's whiskey over wine, you know, but I will look for the sale. Okay. So maybe I'm a little frugal and, but my wife says I'm cheap and I have to believe her. So. All right. I'll ask a follow-up to Sonny's follow-up, which is I'm not a wine connoisseur. I don't look, I'll be honest with you guys. I have a glass or two of red wine to get buzzed because I like the buzz and it's not a regular thing. And that's, I'm not a drinker. I don't drink. So if I'm going to drink a glass or two of wine, it's going to be to get a little buzz. Okay. That's guilty, guilty pleasure right there. What I do is basically I'll go to you guys familiar with uh, Trader Joe's. Oh yeah. Okay. Uh, so I'll go to a Trader Joe's and buy uh, what used to be uh, three buck Chuck is now four buck Chuck, I think. So it's four buck Chuck now. So I'll go buy a four buck Chuck because that's not, it tastes okay to me. Like I like the red four buck Chuck. It tastes fine for me and it works for what I use it for. Sonny calls me cheap because we went, we went to Vegas and I went down to the CVS to get three or $4 wine. I didn't want to pay Six bucks was that what it was? Six bucks on that. John, he walked out of a CVS because the wine was six bucks. Oh Lord, <laughs> I would call that cheap. He is cheap. Yeah, <laughs> it's frugality. It's frugality. No, no, I'm sorry. That's just cheap. And I want the record to show too before we get move forward that I am not complaining about a, a Mexican lunch, a twelve dollar Mexican <laughs> lunch. Trust me. It's just a, making a distinction between the difference in restaurants when a certain friend of mine and I go. So, like I said, he will remain nameless. I can find a six ninety nine really good Mexican lunch. Oh yeah, and Bob right down the street from Bob's house without giving away the his address. He's got a couple really good ones we visited. So, oh, okay. Speedy Gonzalez, baby number three. <laughs> <laughs> Please make sure you hit that follow button to subscribe to Growing Up Rock Podcast so you don't miss an episode. All right. Well, let's get into this uh, episode. So tonight's episode is all about triumphs 
Never Surrender. If you're not familiar with Triumph, this is a Canadian hard rock band formed in 1975. They're no longer active. They've got 16 albums out there. I've heard Triumph referred to as sort of the poor man's rush, and I think that's really strictly because they were a rock band from Canada that's a power trio, much like Rush at that same sort of time frame. So I think a lot of people just kind of lump them into the same thing. And the earlier Triumph stuff had a bit of a progressive feel, uh, which probably came from Rick Emmett more than anything else, because Mike Levine and Gilmore were more of your just straight up rock faction of that band. So I'll start with you, Bob. Do you have a history with Triumph? Do you have a history with this album in particular? Not this album in particular originally, although I do have a history with Triumph because in the early 80s, I want to say 83, 84, probably about the time this came out, I actually did some Triumph shows as a promoter rep working for a promoter company and got to meet the guys. They were playing 2,000, 3,000 seat venues, kind of the norm for that time, North America. But I got into the music. I liked them. I think I still have the backstage pass somewhere. But here's how I look at those guys. You've got to listen to them more than once and you're going to find your favorites. And this album I was not real familiar with, but I went and listened to it three, four, maybe five times. And I started picking out the ones that I liked and definitely picked out the ones I probably wouldn't go back and hit repeat on. Fair enough. How about you, John? I don't have a history like Bob does. I mean, my goodness, Bob's met everybody that's ever done an album, I think. However, I do, I think, have a, a what I think is a pretty funny story about Triumph. It's probably late winter 1979, and I'm at home just outside of Charleston, West Virginia. And I never saw a TV commercial for an upcoming show. And the local television station, the local CBS station was playing commercials for a band called Triumph. And they were advertising it as the best light show out there. <laughs> and that was enough for me. So we're talking, I'm looking at the stub right now, March 9th, 1979. I go see Triumph. I don't know a single song. And I'm thinking I'm here to see a light show. You know, parent it to say kiss or alice cooper or something and that I, I, like i said didn't know any of the songs and at the, the first song they're playing and i'm like there's a dude with a candle and a flashlight and a cigarette lighter that's about it and i'm like this is a ripoff yeah. and then at the end of the first song all hell breaks loose there are just explosions and lights coming from every which where and i became a fan after that started exploring their catalog at that time it was pretty limited and they came back actually in september and it was September 15th, 1979. And I went to that show as well, but sort of knew what I was getting into and have been a fan ever since. Now, this album that we're going to talk about in a few minutes is not one of my favorites of theirs. I don't know if I should have held that till the end or not, but th it has some some moments that I like. And uh, we can surely talk about that. You guys are in charge. You tell me when to talk about it. All right, we'll get into all that. So, Sonny, how about your history with Triumph for this album in particular? Yeah, so I'm a MTV kid, so the first Triumph song I heard was Follow Your Heart. I remember I'm probably doing something, MTV's on in the background, I'm like, who is that singing? Like, I've not heard that voice, right? Because in Follow Your Heart, I mean, the voice is amazing. 
So I'd come in, what, 85, 86. I immediately went backwards. I remember thinking, because one of the first albums I got, it just said Rick Emmett lead vocals, and I didn't read. I was only interested in the singers at the time, right? So I didn't read any of the other stuff. And I always thought like Rick Emmett had like two voices. And then later on, I obviously realized that there's two lead singers. I also remember, so I'm starting my senior year in 85, I graduated in 86. You would see kids with Triumph shirts. And it was, we had this group of like cool kid stoners. They wore all the Ozzy shirts and the Rush shirts and the all these bands. And I'm like, who are these bands? Like, I'm not seeing really a lot of these bands on MTV, right? Because they weren't wearing like Motley Crue shirts. I guess they had coined themselves as non-hair metal and they were only with the smart metal kids or whatever, right? So I was like, oh, those are some pretty cool shirts. I guess I should check out the music. So this particular album, I had not heard till probably mid-90s, right? And it's what I know of Triumph. I don't really like Rush, but I do like most of Triumph. So it's not, it's like Rush light to me. There's times where they kind of go there, but I've not really heard the early, early stuff. I usually kind of stick with the 80s stuff and it's kind of my bang zone with these guys. Yeah. Okay. So my history with Triumph, first of all, I've never seen this band live. However, hearkening back to what John said, I remember reading the articles and hearing about Triumph and this amazing light show. Like at the time, they had this state-of-the-art light show that they used to travel with. And I know that there were like venues that couldn't even fit their light show in the venue. And they couldn't play there for certain reasons and things like that. And it was a band that, you know, they never really broke out in the States unless you live in the state of Texas. Because they did really well in the state of Texas. But. They never came through. I never got to see them live, but I had this friend of mine who at the time, he loved two bands and two bands only. And those two bands were Rush and Triumph. And he was a bass player. And so maybe it was part of the bass playing, but he was like a ridiculous Getty Lee fan. But then he also loved Rick Emmett. And I know Rick Emmett's the guitar player in Triumph, but he was a Rick Emmett fan. And he used to just basically shove Triumph down my throat the first couple of albums. And so I got familiar with, you know, lay it on the line, fight the good fight, stuff like that. But then they sort of came to the forefront like Sonny mentioned with MTV, but for me, it was the earlier phase of MTV and it was world of fantasy. I used to see that video often. Like I remember world of fantasy all the time. So I want to say that I actually got never surrender was probably the first triumph record that I owned and I got it. And it was on, uh, it was on this cassette, and I want to say that I actually, it was one of my selections from Columbia House, the, you know, the tw 12 tapes for a penny or whatever that was. I think that was one of my selections, but uh, I enjoyed it, but I don't enjoy 100% of their stuff. So, with each album, there's probably 50%, maybe 75% of the album that I really enjoy. And there's usually three, sometimes four songs where I'm kind of like, ah, uh, a little bit too slow for me, a little bit moody or whatever. But 
I had the opportunity to meet Rick Emmett at a, um, it was some sort of guitar expo or something that we were doing here in Atlanta. I worked for a music store at the time and he was doing a, a Yamaha experience, some sort of uh, demonstration or something for Yamaha guitars at the time. And that was the first time. And it was just a, hey, how you doing? Nice to meet you, that kind of thing. But yeah, I've been a Triumph fan really since those early days. I just don't love everything they do. So that's my experience with Triumph. All right. Anybody got anything they want to add before we get into some of the basic facts of this album? Uh, Real quickly, did you know that before Triumph was Triumph, they were actually called Abernathy Shagnaster? (laughs) Is that a character from some book or something? I, when I came across that in my research, I went, what the heck? What a name. What a name. So I had no idea about that. I had to, you put it in an email and I was like, okay, I'm going to Google this. And I looked it up and I, I was like, okay, so this is an earlier, it's one of the first names of the band Triumph that Mike Levine had, but that's not even the full name of the band. Do you know what the full name of the band was? I do not. The complete name of the band was Abernathy Shagnaster's Wash and Wear Band. Abernathy Shagnaster's Wash and Wear Band. Try putting that on a business card. There you go. (laughs) Uh, Thank God they changed it to Triumph. (laughs) That marquee across the front is a lot easier to do. Yeah, I looked that up. It was uh, it was one of the first bands that Gil Moore started, and I guess they consider that the early beginnings of, of Triumph. But honestly, I think he was the only one in that band, and that was in 69. So I don't know if we can uh, count that. But, you know, the classic lineup of Triumph is Rick Emmett on vocals and guitars, Mike Levine on bass guitars, pianos, synthesizers, and Gilmore on drums and vocals. And then they did one album, which happens to be the last album they did where Rick Emmett left and they had Phil X come in and uh, do the guitars, uh, which is actually sort of an underrated album with Triumph. Like what you're hearing? Share this episode out. Post it to your favorite social network and let people know you're listening to the Growing Up Rock podcast. It will help us grow and we greatly appreciate it. But we'll get into some basic facts about this album now. So the album was released in 1982 in Canada and 1983 here in the U.S. Sometimes they do things like that. I don't understand why they did that with this particular album since Triumph had already had some success with Allied Forces. The record was recorded at Studio Metalworks Studio, which is that's basically owned by Triumph. Uh, length of the record is 40 minutes. The label was Attic Records, which was in Canada. And here in the U.S., it was RCA. The producer was Triumph and David 
Thoner. Mike Levine typically did all of the producing for Triumph. The record is certified gold, and the peak position on Billboard was number 26, primarily driven by the songs World of Fantasy and the title cut Never Surrender. What do you guys think about this album cover? Sonny, let's start with you. Yeah, so I'll tell you that the colors on it super pop. So I love that. And if you are an X-Men fan, to me, it's like a Magneto mask, right? And <laughs> yeah. the guy almost looks like he's ferocious, almost looking like he's half beast, right? With the flared nostrils. It's a very interesting. I don't know what it has to do with Never Surrender, but it kind of looks like a X-Men Planet of the Apes mixed super color kind of drawing. So. That was my immediate thought was Planet of the Apes. It looks like a gorilla in sort of the mass. So I was thinking, you know, like some of those apes had uh, the gorilla ape guard guys had like those uh, helmet mask things in the movie. So that was my immediate thought. I think the logo is cool. It's a little bit dark. If you get the really, if you get a really good picture of the album cover where the eyes have the blue tint to them, I think it really pops and I think it looks pretty good. Bob, what's your thoughts on this album cover? When I first looked at it, I saw it as a cross between an Aztec god and a Phantom of the Opera mask. That's really what I saw. Maybe it's a little highbrow, but you know. I agree. I think the blue tint in the eyes, if you get the right visual picture to look at, I think that really makes it pop out a little more. But really, almost immediately when I saw it, I went Aztec God meets uh, Phantom of the Paradise or Phantom of the Opera. I can see the Aztec God thing, actually. John, what's your thoughts on this album cover? I think I'm going to make a little bit of a pivot from you guys. But to me, I think it maybe just ties into the title. But I'm seeing a badass eagle. It's like saying, hey, don't tread on me, dude. You know, I'll never surrender. But it looks like an eagle. You see the wings up above the eyes. So I'm just thinking a badass eagle. So it's been said that with this album, if you're a lyrics guy, which I've admitted many, many times in the past, I'm not much of a lyrics guy. But in a lot of Rick Emmett lyrics, they have political themes. And this album in particular they usually always had a song on their albums that was politically based in the lyrics, but this album in particular was said to have three, even four songs that were politically based in the lyrics, which again, I don't really go that deep into lyrics, but that's my understanding with the overall theme of this album. And you get that from the start of the record, which we'll get into when we go track by track. But I don't see any of that political thing other than maybe, yeah, I mean, even with the bird and, and the logo, I, don't, I just don't see that uh, in the album cover myself. If you're a Spotify listener, check out some of the killer playlists we have put together for your listening pleasure. Links to the playlist are in the show notes or just search Growing Up Rock Playlist in Spotify. All right, so let's start with the tracks. So, John, we'll start with you. Too much thinking. Okay, I'll, I'll tell you I like the song because what I'm going to say next is going to make it sound like I don't like these guys. But, John, I got a big problem with if you don't live in this country, 
like don't talk about what's going on politically here like i i just got a serious and i know you guys do a great job of staying out of the politics thing but do you feel the same way about if you don't live here like you shouldn't get to sing about it if you love america if you love freedom if you love your family then you'll love cam brady he believes in our children. Education is our future because schools is this nation's backbone. He defends women's rights. Every day I come in contact with women. Do I sometimes fantasize about their undergarments? Sure. Do I go, uh, when I see them? No. And when it comes to his opponent, he won't back down from a fight. I've seen a mustache like that before, and you know who wore it? Saddam Hussein. And I believe we never caught two of his sons, Uday and Falafel. Ken Brady is what makes America work, and he's not afraid to work it. What does Marty Huggins stand for? I'm Marty Huggins, and I... A communist! That's a real shame. Vote Cam Brady. I'm Cam Brady, and I approve this message. Paid for by Yes We Cam 012. Take care of business with Cam. I know we're here to talk about Trump, but I've never, I think I'm just, what I'm about to say is kind of what you're saying. When I'd hear the guess who American woman, for example, I'm like, you know, that woman's a metaphor for a lot more than just a female. And of course, the guests who are Canadian love Burton Cummings, one of the greatest singers of all time. But I'm kind of echoing what your sentiment is, I think, with that. But that bloody First Amendment, though, gives people the right to say what they want. And we have the, surely have the right to disagree with it. But <laughs> would you think about the first song too much thinking? Did you think it was a good opener? Yes. I kind of have a rule of thumb in my album collection. And it's, it's not etched in stone, but I like the first song on an album to grab you by the throat. It's not a stand up and shout by any means, but it does. It grabs you hard enough by the throat. It gets your attention. Now, the one exception to that rule might be more than a feeling from the first Boston album, which that's maybe a different day. I really like the song. I like the tempo. Just the voice of the singer was a little bit high, it seems sometimes. I don't know. uh, You know, it's a note I I could surely never get. But that's essentially my only complaint about the song. I like the tempo of it, fast driving. It was in your face. But just the pitch of the voice was a little high sometimes. How's that? Yeah. And Bob, uh, they use talk box guitar in this in some of the verses. And man, you got to be careful where you place that, especially in 80s music. But I thought it went off pretty good. What do you think about the song? Well, first of all, I, I find it interesting when we talk about politics. And once again, John Adams and I have a policy. And I and on all of my podcast shows, we don't talk about politics because that's just a can of worms I don't care to ever open. Uh, I found the usage of sound effects and news bites to be interesting. You know, they're using Ronald Reagan and they're using American broadcasters uh, reporting the news once again from a Canadian band. And the reality is we live in the United States. The, The people that live in Canada, we're really, even though we're connected by a common border, we do live in two different worlds, both socially and politically. So it's a little bit uh, effusive, if if that's the proper word. Please tell me you speak English. I'm Detective Carter. Do you speak any English? Do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? But at the same time, once you got into the guitar intro by Rick Emmett, to me, that was driving enough to get my attention. And I found it to be a nice little catchy hook. 
and Stephen, uh, this is Gilmore on lead vocals on this this song. It's a great riff, and it's got a great groove. So I don't, I'm not hating on the song at all. Yeah, I'm not 100% sure about this stat or not, but it seems like the majority of Triumph albums, the lead-off track is Gilmore. He does the lead-off track for a lot of the songs. And again, he and Mike were kind of the straight-up rock and roll portion of the band, whereas Rick was a little bit jazzier, a little bit more progressive in his playing and his uh, flavor, and it came together in the Triumph sound. I like this song. I think it's a good album opener. One thing that I will tell you, and as the editor of this podcast, I will edit it in as we go, but this song and Black Sabbath's Neon Nights, the first verse is completely the exact same. Might be a different key, might sound a little bit different musically, but go listen to it and listen to the first verse in Neon Nights by Ronnie James Dio and Black Sabbath and listen to the first verse in this song. And they're very similar. I was like, I was listening to it and I was like, that verse, that melody reminds me of something. And then I was like, holy crap, that's Neon Nights by Black Sabbath. And it is. And I'll edit this in, and you can judge for yourself. I'll edit the first verse in, and you can hear it, and then go from there. Also, one thing I do want to say is 
we here at the Growing Up Rock podcast, we don't talk politics much at all either. We don't talk politics. We don't talk religion much. What else do we not talk about? Sonny, there's all kinds of things that we don't touch too much on, yet we'll have the second U.S. president of the United States on this podcast. Welcome to the podcast, John (laughs) Adams. God damn, you look good, son. (laughs) All right, I like this tune. So the next track we got is A World of Fantasy, and John, you know, this is a triumph ballad, but and I like it, but they were almost too brilliant for their own good. Like their ballads didn't really have mass appeal that's going to go grab a lot of people. They were almost like smart ballads. I don't know if that makes sense. Yes, it does. I really like this song. It reminds me a lot of Sweet Madam Blue by Sticks at the beginning, which I think is a good thing. And it's. Just, I think by then, not just Triumph, but many bands, the the power ballad formula was pretty much in place and everybody kind of knew how to do one. And they were just taking these power ballads to another level, in my opinion, or at least attempting to. So you could tell even from their progression from, you know, from Lay It on the Line and some of the earlier songs, they've been just getting to where they had a little bit of a formula for one or two of these songs per album. But I still, still really like this. You know, is a song about falling for a woman or is a woman a metaphor for fame and money? I don't know, because I tried to read the lyrics a little bit, but I still liked it. Yeah. And Bob, a lot of people compare Rick Emmett's voice to Getty Lee. To me, there's no comparison. I love Rick's voice. I don't like Getty Lee's voice. And I think it's because Rick's voice seems to have a little more soul to it, even though it might have the same pitch. Here's where you and I sit on the opposite side of the railroad tracks. Because I'm a huge Getty Lee fan, a big Rush fan. At the same time, A World of Fantasy, it just, it wasn't one of my favorite songs. I, I, I listened to it, like I said, a few times. But to me, it sounded like every other power ballad out there at that time and just didn't do anything. I, I just, and when I finally finished the song, I'll, the thing that, the phrase that came to mind was keep walking folks. There's nothing to see here. <laughs> uh, Steven one, and we'll probably say this a couple of times. One of the things that Rick does do well though, is his guitar solo fits the song perfectly. Like there's no Vinnie Vincent happening here. No, he plays for the song. I agree with that. So I completely disagree with the statement that this is like every other power ballad. I'm not a power ballads guy. And I think that in 1983, this comes a little bit ahead of what would be for sure, like the power, power ballad era. I think there were a lot more power ballads to come with, uh, a lot of the hair bands. So in 1983, I don't, I don't think we were quite there yet, but to me, I love this song. But it is different. It has a different feel to me than a power ballad. I I mean, I guess it's a ballad. I I don't know. You guys have all called it a ballad, and I'm not going to argue that it's a ballad, but it just feels different to me for some reason. And I don't know whether it's the lyrics or the uh, song or where it gets heavy and where it gets soft. But for some reason, I really like this song as a whole.
The next track is a minor prelude. And John, you're more of a Triumph fan than I am. I think most Triumph albums have this like classical guitar solo piece in them somewhere, don't they? Yeah, the the ones I have do. And I liked this, even though it's what a minute and forty seconds or something like that. And once again, it took me to another place. Back, uh, you know, like I mentioned earlier, the last song remind me a little bit of Sweet Madam Blue. But when I first was, I re-listened to this album this morning, and I first thought of Yes and Steve Howe, and that's a good thing. And believe it or not, this had you remember the band Vandenberg? Yeah, this had a little bit of a Vandenberg feel to it to me. And I really liked it. I know I'm one early, but I like how it transitioned into the next song, which I think's the whole point anyway. Yeah, and Bob, uh, you know, John mentioned Steve Howe. I think the Steve Howes and the Rick Emmets of the world, I'm sure they could have played as fast as everybody else in the 80s. And later on, Rick does here. But I think both of those guys and guys like them learned that, you know, less is actually more. Like, show your flavor instead of the speed, right? I think where Rick really shines is when he goes down that classical music path that shows who he is, what he is, you know, and I like the idea that it's, there's always something classically interwoven into their albums. Uh, And it was a nice segue into, into all the way. I will say getting off the guitars for a minute and Bob Ludwig mastered this album and, and I've, I've known Bob for years and, and have worked on a couple of projects that he mastered for me. The drums to me were just a little tad bit overproduced and compressed. And I know that's what the sound was in the eighties for me. It was a little bit of a distraction from the rest of the song. Stephen, uh, these <laughs> these instrumentals aren't usually popular with us, but at least it was short and sweet. Yeah, so Rick Emmett is a guitar hero from that point of time. He might not get talked about in the same breaths as the EVHs and the George Lynches and guys like that, but Rick was is an extremely proficient guitar player. I mean, uh, he's incredible shred player an incredible classical guy uh he can play it all and i don't mind this piece i think it's a nice interlude at 44 seconds and uh i don't i don't mind it maybe it's a little early in the record for me being the third thing that you hear so maybe one more song and then this interlude uh as far as sequencing goes but uh yeah i don't mind it overall And then the next track we get is All the Way, and John, you kind of mentioned a little bit, but from classical right into like this great pace, and you kind of see the dynamics of Rick Emmett's guitar playing almost immediately. Agreed. I think, as I said a moment ago, the prelude, of course, was obviously a prelude to this song, and I think it was just a a great transition. And this song, what stuck out to me was just a good tempo, and you could sing along to the chorus. You know, I don't know if this was not a, I think this was released as a single, 
And I don't think it was ever a big hit, but I think one of the keys to having a big hit is you have to have something people can sing along to. And I think that's been a formula for U2 and Coldplay and some of the biggest bands in the world. Now, I know Triumph's not that, but that's one of the things I thought of with this song, just that chorus. You could sing along to it and tap your toe, which I think is a, a good ingredient for just a good basic rock and roll song. Yeah. And Bob, talking about a little basic on rock and roll, you know, this whole build up into the bridge and then into this great guitar solo. A lot of people use it, but being that Rick is talented enough to keep you interested all the way through it and do both sides of dynamic well, I think it boded well for this song. I think a lot of guitarists out there can be shredders. A lot of them cannot have that classical nuance that he does. And I think that's what separates the meat from the potatoes. Steven, man, Rick does a lead vocal here. It, this is a well-written song to me. Yeah, I dig this song. I mean, it's a, it's a great rocker. I really, really enjoy the bridge going into the solo break. It's just a, yeah, like you said, it's a great rock and roll tune. Three minutes and 45 seconds, as it should be. Yeah. All right, so the next song we got to Battle Cry. And, John, this is when I noticed the drums for some reason. Like, the drums are completely killing it on this song. Like, the fills are playing off what the guitar is doing. I had not noticed the drums until this song. Yeah, it's interesting because we went from such a good, you know, what we just all said is a good rock song, had the basic ingredients of a rock song in the, in the battle cry. And this song has the kind of tempo. I mean, I like all music, but this I like the tempo of this song. It's what I would call my Peyton Manning song. It's kind of in the pocket. And I just really enjoyed that. And the voice, the singing seemed much more under control on this song than some of the previous tracks. I just liked it. Like I said, it was right there in the pocket for me. And it was just something you, I'm not going to say classic headbanging song, but it's something you could surely tilt to, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And Bob, I mentioned earlier, Rick to me has more soul in his voice when Gil sings, because Gil sings this song. He has a little more bite to his voice, but to me, he showed some great emotion in this song. I think you've got to be real careful when you are a lead singer in a group that you sing within your range and stretching it is always good as long as you can hit the notes. Let's remember, this goes back to the days when we didn't have pitch correction. We didn't have auto tune. We didn't have 
the melodyne. We didn't have all those sayings to let's fix the vocals. You had to do it in one take or 12 takes or 20 takes to get it right. And I think that, you know, he accomplished that. Now, I will say the very, at least the very intro of the song kind of reminded me just for a, a quick moment. I got this flash of kind of the Van Hagar days. It just, you know, it, it, I think this song preempted them, obviously. But I went, you know, that's a tasty little morsel in the beginning of the song. I accept that. That's good. And then, uh, Stephen, I've mentioned Rick's guitar playing a little bit. That that little mini breakdown with the volume swells into that perfect guitar. So I'm like, God, I loved guys like Dave Medichetti and the folks that do that well. And, man, something about Rick's guitar playing, man, he had me there. Yeah, we've talked about Rick's guitar playing and Rick's vocals and things like that. But I'll tell you what, we don't talk about Gil Moore's vocals enough gilmore's got to be one of the better singing drummers out there and there's not a ton of them uh you know there's there's just not a ton of singing drummers but he's got a great rock and roll voice and hats off to somebody that can play drums and sing because that's just too many things going on at one time for anybody so my hats are always off to guys that can do that but uh just he sounds so good on this song and you know it all comes together rick's playing the background vocals when he and rick do the harmonies and just it's a great song I think those guys really harmonize well off of each other. And, and Stephen, you hit the nail on the head. You can probably name the number of drummers who are also vocalists. You could probably name them on one hand, maybe two. Yeah. Bob was the tour manager for one. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> Ringo. I don't think he's the greatest vocalist in the world. Uh, you know, look, he, he, he's a Beatle. I think that in his own right says a lot right there. Uh, on that particular tour, I will tell you, we had three drummers on the show. Yeah. Uh, of course, we had Ringo. We also had Levon Helm from the band, who in his own right 
as a singer and a drummer. And, you know, the, the night they drove old Dixie down and, you know, those uh, up on Cripple Creek, you know, Levon, it was a home run every night. And then the third drummer was the world famous, legendary legacy, Jim Keltner, who has yeah. played with absolutely just about everybody in the world. And when you get those three drummers together, it's just going to rock on. Is this before Zach? Did his son not play drums? Uh, this was the very first tour, 1989, the very first All-Star tour. Zach actually came out and joined on a couple of the shows, but he was still relatively relatively young back then. Yeah. Who were the guitar players on that tour? That was uh, Joe Walsh and Nils Lofgren. Yeah. yeah. He's always got great guitar players, whether it's Peter Frampton or she, there's been guitar players on that tour that I, I even had no clue that were playing guitar in his band. Some of the, some of the guys from, uh, some of the hard rock bands from the eighties that were aces were in his band at one point in time or another. Well, and while we're going down that path, let's not forget the rest of the guys in the band. Cause it was truly an all-star lineup. Mm-hmm. We had Rick Danko on the bass. Of course, Rick Danko was Bob Dylan's bassist. And then in the band with Robbie Robertson and Garth and uh, Garth Hudson and, and Levon. And then you had Clarence Clemens on saxophone. Mm-hmm. And two of what I would consider some of the most outstanding keyboard players, uh, Dr. John, Mac Rebinac, and mm-hmm. then uh, the legendary Billy Preston, who really technically was the fifth Beatle. Yeah, I'll put it to you this way. When you got the opportunity to play with a Beatle, any Beatle, you're yeah, going to play with the Beatle, right? Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't matter whether it's Ringo Starr, McCartney, Harrison, Lennon. It doesn't matter if a Beatle calls you and says, hey, you want to come play in my band? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and for the listeners, we, we just kind of sidetracked from the album review and went off into this world. For those that are not aware, Bob was once the tour manager for the Ringo Starr all-star band tour and we just kind of threw that in there and started talking about it but that's why we threw that in there and started talking about it all right so next we have overture procession john we went from a great melodic rock song to like the heavier side of triumph to a broadway play (laughs) (laughs) yeah the whole time i've listened to this previously and today I just kept thinking they're trying too hard. That's just what I thought. They're just trying too hard with this one. And, you know, it seems like I always draw a comparison to another band with every song I hear, but I was thinking Trans-Siberian Orchestra almost, Yeah, which is a good thing. I like them. They're coming back to town this year and I haven't seen them in a few years and I'll go, but it just seemed like with this, the way they were transitioning from song to song. And I'm sure there's a method to the madness, but this one seemed more like madness to me. And they were just trying too daggone hard. And Bob, I'm in agreement with trying too hard. It just feels like they came up with something, they liked it, they couldn't figure out where to fit it, and you don't want to leave it on the cutting room floor, so you stick it in somewhere, and just never really fits when you do that. Yeah, I, and I got to tell you, I, I simply just, I didn't get the song. And the other thing is, me, if I'm going to listen to metal music, I don't want to hear a bunch of synthesizers unless it's Ronnie James Dio and he could get away with that. To me, it was just a filler piece. I didn't see it serving any purpose. Uh, If you're going to be a three-piece metal band, then that's what you need to be. And just the added fluff doesn't help. (laughs) 
And Steven, I don't know who to blame for this. Uh, it's almost like a, hey, remember, we're serious musicians. So, you know, we got to have serious stuff on here. You know how I feel about some of this stuff. So we've already had a minor prelude, which we all said, hey, it's a nice little short piece. Classical guitar shows off Rick's playing. Do we really need this? So, okay, it kicks off side two. I flipped over the tape, and it's like a little intro to side two, but it's a minute and 52 seconds. And when you got a a 40-minute record, then that's almost another song, and instead I got this overture processional thing. I just see it as kind of pointless. I don't need it to set the mood. That's my two cents worth hello pantheon podcast listeners christian swain here to tell you more about my experience with raycon earbuds our family now has three pairs of raycon earbuds around the house and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price and yes she loves them now if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of raycons or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once, new quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. So then we get the title track, Never Surrender. And John... (laughs) I guess if you're a Canadian band, you must have a seven-minute song on an album. Maybe it's in the every record contract or something. You know, I like this song. I'd like to see that seven-minute contract, but I think it ties into what Bob said a minute ago. Back in those days, every album's like 40 minutes. You know, you had two 20-minute sides, and they were probably just needing to fill another four or five minutes. I don't know, but I really like this song. It's funky. It's got a little bit of that, uh, you know, I don't want to get in trouble again, but it's almost power ballad like still yeah but it's just funky to me 
And halfway through the song, that jam that kicks in, which kind of, I'm going to contradict myself, takes us out of power battle land. And it shows off just the virtuosity of these guys. And I haven't talked about that yet. And we all, you guys all have. These are all just fantastic virtuoso musicians. And they show off a little bit in the last half of this song, which I think is a very good thing. Yeah. Bob, what I couldn't figure out is the hold up your head up high at the end. I think that's Rick. But the rest of it, is it a Gil and Rick mix or who's singing? Like, I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't either. And and I went back and listened to it several times with headphones on. And it's very, very difficult to discern between the two. I will say, though, even though it wasn't one of my favorite, as good as some of the other tracks on the album, I thought, you know, and, and John said it was funky. I thought it had a really nice groove to it. And, you know, if I was a dancer, which I, I'm not allowed to dance in most of the states and every province of Canada that's been outlawed that Bob can't dance. But I think it, it's, it, it would be a fun song to dance to. And then, like I said, it's got a nice groove to it. Yeah, Stephen, we're talking funk groove. I thought the guitar riff was like bouncy, right? So I guess all of those things kind of mean the same thing. Some real great drum fills. I like the verses. I didn't love the chorus. That's where it kind of ended for me. Man, I'll tell you what. I love this tune. Rick Emmett whips out that that uh, dual neck guitar, and he's got the 12 string, and he's got the 6 string. And it is mostly Rick Emmett doing the singing on this song. And one thing I would recommend is Triumph recently released the Us Festival performance in its entirety because they were the ones that the only ones that were smart enough to keep the rights to that <laughs> good the only them. one they sober released, possibly <laughs> probably <laughs> they released it and i went and watched it because it's out there on youtube just google uh on youtube just look for uh triumph us festival official dvd release performance but it's out there and man i'll tell you what they kicked ass that performance. They came out there and they rocked that crowd in the sun and they were so good and they sounded so good. And this, this is like, I don't know, the third or fourth song that they do in the concert, but it's just so good. I mean, I don't, I don't consider this a ballot at all. Uh, I love the feel of this whole tune. It's really, I mean, it's a six minute and 41 second song, but I don't actually care which is saying a lot for me because I, you know, some of these long songs, they just get on my, my nerve. But this one, I don't even feel like it's a long song and Rick Emmett's vocals are killer. The guitar is a killer. The different flavors from the, like you guys were saying, the, the chord structure with the 12 string and then go into the heavier section that just kind of speeds up. I just, I like this song a lot.
So the next song is When the Lights Go Down. And John, that acoustic intro, that swampy, and then you get to the riff that kind of punches you in the face, like it had me right from the beginning. Yeah, this might be my favorite track on the record. Kind of goes Buddy Guy, or, you know, granted, these guys were before Cinderella, but remind me a little bit of Cinderella when I re-listened to it. And the lyrics are a little bit cheesy on this song, but I don't care. I like it. It's the it's just bluesy and crunchy. I think you said, and, and I just I just like the feel of it and the tempo. Once again, I said this about an earlier song. Just a good bluesy rock and roll song. Yeah, Bob, you were talking about the production earlier. This is a song you want to hear with headphones because the guitar soloing goes from ear to ear, which was really cool. Yeah, I thought they did a great job of panning, which once again, remember back in those days, it was all analog. Yeah. You didn't digitize that. You probably had one guy on one fader and one guy on another fighter and turning the knobs. I'm going to jump back in on, on Gilmore's drums. And, and this is not a reflection of Gilmore. I just think once again, they way overproduce those drums. You know, you can take a, a song and make it good, but at the same time, simpler is better as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And Stephen, here's another song. I love the verses. The chorus was meant to me. Like this, it's one good chorus away from mass appeal on this song. Like you have radio hit here if that chorus is better. So I'm going to I'm gonna say this on the podcast for the 450th time. Give me swampy guitar blues into a heavy riff and i'm in kisses rise to it love it cinderella love it (laughs) when the lights go down triumph love it just to insert because i think i don't know what it is but i think just about every hard rock band has a song like this where they do this swampy just bluesy slide type thing and then they go into this heavy riff and I'm sold and I'll double what what was being said about the panning uh, in the headphones it freaking that was one of my notes I love the solo breakdown in the headphones sounds so good I dig this tune for sure
Writing on the Wall is next. And John, Rolling Stone said these guys are a faceless band. I think a lot of 70s bands ended up there because there wasn't really avenues for you to see people's faces until MTV kind of shows up. And these guys weren't the type of band that was going to end up in magazines. Yeah. You know, I've, I've mixed feelings about MTV and we've talked offline about some other things. And, you know, I think, you know, it's on video killed the radio star. And I think, you know, video hurt music initially. But these guys, you know, were one of those bands that went from the 70s, 80s and never surrenders. Like I said, it's a decent video. It's, it's you know, and I know we're not talking about that song right now, but it's basically a live video. And this song, Riding on the Wall, uh, as many other songs on this record, it kind of reminds me of somebody else at the beginning. And then I, I you know, kind of go ADD for a while, then come back to earth. But I, it gave me a summer of 69 feel by Brian Adams. And, you know, I, that's not a bad thing. And I like the tempo of the song. And it's just uh, seems to me just about a good old classic stay in your lane song about perseverance and staying true to yourself and Hey, not a bad song, not my favorite on the record, but you know, Hey, I give it a, a, a C. Yeah. Bob, for me, that chugging riff at the beginning had radio hit written all over it, but the course wasn't really written for radio. Yeah. I, I think once again, you're probably in a, in a time period where bands, and I think triumph is no exception where they're really trying to figure out who they are and what they are and what's it going to take to get radio play. You know, what's it going to take to get their, their video seen on MTV? To me, it was probably one of my favorite songs on the album. Although, with that being said, it took me about three or four listens to get to that point to go, I like this. I don't have to overthink it. It's just fun. And, you know, that for me is that's where I want to be when I'm listening to music. If I want to get deep and ethereal and then I'll listen to like, you know, Pat Metheny group or Chick Corea, you know, I'll get into the hardcore jazz type stuff. But if I just want to enjoy music, this song is one of those tunes that I can just put my headphones on and close my eyes and, and, and like it. Steven, did he just say ethereal? Dude, do you know where you are? <laughs> we use small words here. <laughs> Hello, grown up rock listeners. And the word of the day is ethereal. Um, Bob, can you use it in a sentence? He just did. That's why I didn't understand what he said. I find myself on this podcast to be in a very ethereal place. Do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? There you have it. Don't forget to tip your waiter. Steven Rick sounds great on this song. His vocals sound great. So, all right, Sonny, don't lose your mind. Just hear me out. Don't go jumping around real quick when i first heard this song as i was listening to it not the first time i heard the song but as i was listening back studying up for this episode when i put this song on what came to mind instantaneously and it doesn't i'm not saying it sounds exactly like it i'm not saying it's better than it it reminded me of john waite's changes do you hear that the type of riff and the the delivery of the melody, it's very, uh, it just reminded me of John Waite changes. Uh, and my notes were, my notes were changes. I like it. Just a pop rocker. 
And so it's it's definitely the poppiest song on this record as far as straight ahead, just I would call it pop rock. And I like it. Don't get me wrong. It's not as good as Changes, not as well written of a song as Changes, but it's it's good. John Waite doesn't have a song called Changes. What am I talking about? Are you talking about change? There's no S. I like plural. You add an S to like everything. I don't know why you do that. <laughs> I'm ethereal, <What>? Poony. <laughs> All right. So the last song is Epilogues Resolutions, I guess. Um, <laughs> John, uh, you know, beautiful piece. Rick, after he left triumph and did some solo stuff it was very jazzy like this was i'm gonna steal a line bob used earlier and to me this was more like filler i didn't get it not disagreeing with with rick's musicianship and creativity or things like that this to me just didn't seem to match what the record was doing hey feel free to disagree yeah bob and i would say i agree with john in the fact that sometimes these bands forget the listeners don't understand this kind of stuff. Just simple rock would be enough. This is such a, a, a right turn Clyde from the rest of the album. When I listened to it, though, the thing that popped into my mind, very first thing, was Jeff Beck's 1975 blow by blow, because we've ended as lovers. And, and, and I think that, Rick may have actually snagged a couple guitar lines or guitar licks off of that album. And to me, if I had to rank, you know, 
albums in the top 10, Jeff Beck's Blow by Blow is, is definitely probably top three, top five. So I'm going to say this. I think Rick, maybe subconsciously or inadvertently, was paying a bit of homage to someone like a Jeff Beck because this it was so off the norm from the rest of the album but I found it to just be really, really nice. Yeah, and Stephen, I like the piece, don't get me wrong, but I think, is it just Rick's trying to show people he is a musician? He's not showing off, like the kind of the difference between cheap and frugal, right? They're showing off and then showing I can do it, I'm a serious musician. I think those are two separate things. All right, we got to reel this stuff in, okay? We got 40 minutes and 31 seconds to show the world a record. Now, I know Rick Emmett's a great guitar player. Let's assume nobody else does. So I want to show the world that Rick Emmett's a great guitar player. Great. You did that on Minor Prelude. You did that on pretty much all the other songs whenever he has a solo break. I get it. Rick Emmett's great. I don't need three, count them, three freaking instrumental pieces on a 40-minute album. I don't need it. I like musicianship as much as the next person, but Eddie Van Halen, my all-time favorite guitar player, Van Halen, my all-time favorite band, I've said it how many times, I like Spanish Fly, I like Eruption, but I don't need, as we got into some of these later albums, all these other weird pieces, bits and pieces, things. You want to do a solo record, go do a solo record. Great. You want to do an album of nothing but interludes, go do an album of nothing but interludes. This is a triumph record. Just give me triumph songs and don't have them all be instrumental. I don't, I don't need it. I think it's a waste of time. How much time? Two minutes and 42 seconds. One minute and 52 seconds and 44 seconds. Right there, we have, what, almost five minutes for another song. Yeah. Yeah, I get it. All right. So that was the end of the album. I want to get everybody's top two, bottom two, and get some final thoughts. I'll start. I'm not going to choose the instrumentals. I thought that was too easy. So my top two are really all the way. And when the lights go down. My bottom two, I wasn't in love with the world of fantasy, 
And I pick too much thinking because I don't like people who don't live in this country talking about my politics. <laughs> but, uh, and my final thoughts on the album, if you've never heard it and you are a Rush fan and you are a melodic rock fan, there's no reason not to give Never Surrender a listen because there's some excellent musicianship. There's some great songs on here. The vocals are killer by both lead singers, which that when you get a lot of lead singers in a group which here is two-thirds, so to them it is a lot. You can't always say you like both of them equally. I would say I like Rick more than Gil, but they're both awesome at what they do, so it's definitely worth a listen. Bob, we'll start with you, top two, bottom two, and give us kind of your final thoughts on the record. I think top two for me, I'm different, I'm strange, I'm ethereal. Epilogue, I really liked it, I just because uh, I like that kind of music. And then I think uh, when the lights go down, I love the slide guitar. I kind of like that, you know, that kind of that just great little sound that he got. I thought the solo was very tasty. Those would be my top two. Too much thinking. I agree. I thought it was, you know, you're you're politicizing something that maybe you don't even know what you're talking about. And then uh, Overture. I said it before. I'll say it again. I simply just did not get the song. I think if you're, if you want to get into Triumph, I don't know if this is necessarily the album to get started in. I'm going to say maybe Allied Forces, you know, would be the one that I would choose if you want a, a quick introduction, a primer into Triumph. I don't think it's this album. John, how about you? I'm going to copy Bob a little bit. It's not just because we co-host a show together. But When the Lights Go Down, for me, it's my favorite track on the record. And the title track, Never Surrender. I just think that's such a good song. Uh, tempo, time signature changes, all that stuff the professional musicians say. Just great musicianship. I'm going to count my least favorite is probably Overture. And if you'll permit me, the three preludes or whatever the heck you want to call them just didn't work for me at all. So I'm going to count those as one if you'll let me. Okay, that's fair. And the album, I give a C. I mean, I agree with Bob. It's not, if I would tell a friend to listen to Triumph, I'd, I wouldn't start with this one. I'd probably start with Progressions of Power or Just a Game. Those are my favorites. But hey, you know, I, I, I don't want to seem too critical because it takes gorilla sized gonads to put yourself out like this, to release an album, to say to the world, this is what I got. What do you think? Most people can't do it and won't do it and don't do it. So I, I, I hesitate to be this critical. Because I just, like I said, it just takes balls and you know, it's something I've never done. Anyway, I still salute them. <laughs> Fair. Stephen, how about you? Uh, for me, my favorite two are going to be Never Surrender. I love that song. And World of Fantasy. I like it. I think uh, I don't like a whole lot of slower tunes. And this one just feels different to me and has a different flavor to it. And uh, I just remember it a lot on MTV and I just, I enjoy it. My bottom two, I don't care whether they're instrumental or not, but epilogue and overture are just pointless to me. So those are my bottom two. All right. So before we get to the Kiss Connection, Bob congratulations on the rock gods hall of fame what is that all about thank you very much so you, we've all heard about the rock and roll hall of fame yeah and you know they they honor all of those just amazing artists uh you know everybody from tom petty to black eyed peas to you know whoever 
the Rock Gods Hall of Fame was created back in 2009 to pay homage, to honor those behind the scenes, the tour managers, the production managers, the A&R guys, the session guitar player, or the, the guy that's on stage with Elton John performing. And so it's, it's really a really cool uh, little nonprofit organization. They're 501c3. It's rockgodshalloffame.com. And once a year, if you have been inducted or you are a board member, then you get to nominate someone to be inducted into the Hall of Fame. And uh, somehow my name got drawn out of a hat, and there I was. It was very cool because I was actually on stage with uh, Vanilla Fudge, and I was a huge fan of Vanilla Fudge back in the day. Still am. Pat Travers was there. My former boss, Mike Curb from Curb Records, was inducted. Uh, so, yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, that's great. All right, so let's get to the KISS connection. Hey, Hollywood, you know what time it is. Let's connect it to KISS. You wanted the best, but you got the best. The hottest band in the world, KISS! So for the KISS Connection, we're going to stick with the 1983 theme because we are doing 40th year anniversary albums and Never Surrender is one. And we're going to go with a song from Lick It Up. So one of my favorite songs from KISS. So here is Eric Carr on drums, Vinnie Vincent on guitar. At least we think he played rhythm guitar. Not sure. He co-wrote the song, so you would think he would, but that'd be a little weird. We do know Rick Derringer played the lead guitar, Gene Simmons on bass, and Paul Stanley on guitar and vocals with Exciter. this program to bring you a special report look at all the people here tonight oh man i got 
like to make an announcement right here. Can you hear me out there? It's time to take a quick break in the action from this week's episode. Sonny and I just wanted to thank all of you, the listeners, for joining us each and every week. Whether you just found us today or have been listening for multiple episodes, we love your passion for music and rock and roll in general. We consider you all part of our loud minority family. Always remember you can communicate with us a few different ways. If you don't mind Facebook, head over to the Growing Up Rock Loud Minority Facebook group and be part of the conversation. It's a private group and all you have to do is ask to join, answer a few rock and roll questions, and you're in. If you despise Facebook, which many people do, then send us an email to growinguprock at gmail.com. We get everything there. You can follow us on Twitter and Insta at Growing Up Rock, which is one word, G-R-O-W-I-N-U-P-R-O-C-K. In the event you feel entertained by our podcast, we would appreciate it if you subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode and go leave us a five-star review either at Apple Podcast or Podchaser. Now, back to our regularly scheduled program. So, Bob, we'll start with you because you were Rick Derringer's tour manager. Did working with Kiss, first of all, ever come up or was that before the fact? Uh, when I worked with Rick, would have been 90, so he would have already been with him back in the 80s. But when you talk to Rick Derringer and you start finding out everybody he's ever played with, you know, you got to remember he was in the McCoys, Hang On Sloopy. Yeah. You know, the, this guy goes back to the 60s. I think for Rick, and, and and maybe I'm speaking out of turn, but I think for him it was just a fleeting moment. You know, it was just one of many gigs that he did. Rick, in his worst state, uh, and I'll just leave it at that, that guy could pull bombshells out of his guitar and just rip on the stage and and just Rick to me is one of the greatest guitar players out there ever and uh I have to be honest until I actually did a little bit of reading I didn't know that connection of Rick Derringer and Kiss but yeah it never came up in conversation we talked about a whole lot of other things <laughs> are you a Kiss fan did you like the song Bob I actually worked probably about a dozen Kiss shows back in the 80s. Uh, did their Unmasked tour. Okay. And uh, back in those days, you know, got to know Gene Simmons a little bit more than any of the other guys uh, on a very casual basis. Trust me, we don't, we didn't exchange phone numbers or, or, you know, have coffee, but it was kind of a backstage thing. You know, we see each other every night and go, hey, how you doing? I'm fine. How you doing? I was one of those cats out there that I wasn't a big Kiss fan. I just, I didn't get the makeup. I didn't get the music. To me, once again, it's just, there were other artists that I was listening to outside of Kiss. And of course, we look at your walls and we get where you're at. You look at my walls and, you know, the stuff I've got hanging in the other, in the other rooms. I, I will say this. I have one framed piece of memorabilia from the kiss tour because i never threw anything away every single show and steven may have done the same thing every single show every single tour 
I kept the tour laminates. I kept the backstage passes. I have the signed eight by 10 from kiss. And you know, it's, I think it's actually in my garage right now with about 40 other pieces, but I've got that all matted and framed and, and, and it's got a plaque on the bottom of it. And uh, yeah, that's about the closest thing I've got to any kiss memorabilia that I've kept. That's fair. John, do you like fast kiss? Did you like the song? Yes. Kind of referencing what I mentioned a little bit earlier on the triumph segment, but it's got that, you know, the thing I like about the first song of the album, grabbing you by the throat. And I just like the tempo of it. I haven't played it in a while, actually. So it was good to revisit this. Thanks to, thanks to you guys. And it's interesting. We talked about the guitar solo and Rick Derringer, but it's, if I'm remembering this correctly, there was like a mini solo going in and a little, little break and then the, the faster solo. And Steve, I hope you like this because the first little mini solo reminded me a little bit of Van Halen. Everybody wants some because it was under control and you don't hear any. I love Eddie. I, I love Van Halen. But there was, you know, that solo and everybody wants some is under under so much control. And that's what this reminded me of. And then the second solo was blistering, which I liked. I liked that transition. So maybe I'm overthinking this a little bit. And. I was like I said, it was good to revisit this because I kind of tuned Kiss out a little bit when they started changing lineups and things, and didn't come back to the Psycho Circus, frankly. So uh, I've had to do a little bit of homework with this, and but it was good, and I think I have a renewed appreciation for this era and this lineup now because of this. Yeah, Stephen, you can't get a, a better ripping opening track on a Kiss album, that's for sure. I love this song, but all you really need to know about this song, Sonny, is what. Exciter. <laughs> That's all you need to know. <laughs> Passion and flame. Exciter. So as we close up, I'll drop a bombshell here and then I'm going to hand it to Steven. Uh, we have somebody in this Brady Bunch four screen person thing I'm looking at that believes VH3 is an awesome album. I'll just drop that nugget. And I'll let Steven close it up. You know, I got to say, guys, it's been fun. I got to go. <laughs> God, Lord. I don't even, I don't Sonny, even know how to approach this okay, at all. Steven, if I could interject here. Sonny, remember what I said about paybacks a bit? <laughs> you, just, you just keep watching your backside there, buddy. I think I actually, I think you gave it away on one of your episodes that I listened to recently. Uh, one of the uh, music 101s, I think the guy that you had there that was, um, he was really good. What was his name? The guy from uh, Vertical Horizon. So in your conversation, I think it, it was released that you were a fan of Van Halen 3. And this guy, I'm here. He won't let sleeping dogs lie. And he he might be in that that payback list after Sonny. So Yeah, I've been teasing Bob about this for a while because I mean actually I've there are a couple songs on Van Halen three I like, and I like yeah. Extreme. Bob thinks Whatever. I don't like Extreme. I don't Whatever. that's not true. Yeah. The, I'm gonna leave it like this because we can go into a great discussion with this. But Van Halen three, the problem is not Gary Sharone. Gary Sharone is not the problem. He's an escape goat. But he's not the problem. The problem with Van Halen 3 is that it was an Eddie Van Halen solo record that had a producer that had no business being the producer that would not tell Eddie no. 
And that was the problem with Van Halen 3. There are two or three good songs on it. I'll say that. There are two or three decent songs on that, but it's not a great record. And especially in comparison to the rest of the catalog, it's not a great record. You know, I I was going to acquiesce at one point in the early days, but... What word was that? Acquiesce. I don't... Okay. (laughs) Quit using those words. I was willing to say, okay... Maybe I made a mistake. Maybe I, I need to go back and listen to this. But, you know, that that man right there who's hiding his face right now, uh, you know, I have stood on my rock and I've got my sword and I'll die by it by now, just so you know. All right. You take that to the grave, my friend. <laughs> and, I'll take, and I'll take as many with me as I can. Steve, if you'll permit me to, to just ask you one more question. What's your favorite Van Halen album? Uh, that's really tough, but we did the Van Halen series uh, back in, uh, I don't know, uh, the year before last, I guess. It was the first album series that we did right after EVH's passing, and it, it came down to Fair Warning. It was really tight, but for me, Fair Warning uh, was really important in my childhood, and it's a record that just sound-wise I go back to. Song for song, I probably like VH1 better, but overall, Fair Warning is probably my record of choice. Believe it or not, that's mine. And and I uh, years ago, I, I can't find it now, but I ran into a, like a Van Halen chat group, and they called the few people that think Fair Warning's number one. They called us the Van Halen snobs. So, uh, but it's Van Halen one is a eyelash second for me. I mean, I don't think you, I, I've said it numerous times, I don't think you can go wrong with the first six records, and a lot of people don't like Diver Down, but I think it's a fantastic record and a fantastic summer record at that. But, hey, that's a whole nother discussion. Let me end this podcast in saying, Bob and John, thanks for coming on the podcast. Again, the name of your podcast is Two Dudes Talk Money and Music. And you guys discuss finances and you discuss music and it's available anywhere you find your podcast. Is there anything that either one of you guys want to say before we get up on out of here? I'd just like to say thank you for having us. I've enjoyed it and I like to pick it, Bob, but Bob's got one hell of a resume there. And it's nice to have uh, somebody with his wealth of knowledge, I I think, give his opinion on some things like this because but he, he knows everybody in this business or has been their manager. And I, I always like to get his insight on these things and his opinion. So thanks for having me on. And I'll thank you for having Bob on as well and let him do that too. Stephen, Sonny, this has been three and a half hours of the best time I've ever had. <laughs> and let's do it again real soon. Sonny, do you have anything to add before we get up on out of this three and a half hour uh, fest? Uh, <laughs> Bob and John, thanks for coming on. Love you guys' podcast. I listen to it every week because I learn something every week. And I started listening to the business side of music because I, I always wanted to be in the business. I didn't have the talent to be in the business or the patience, but I've always been interested in behind the scenes. And I, so that, that topic just interests me. So that there, there've been a couple episodes I've listened to. I'm like, Oh, wow. Kind of like, Oh, wow. I'm glad I didn't get in that business. <laughs> I'd be dead by now. <laughs> but uh, 
no, two great podcasts and bet you guys as friends and uh, just uh, thanks for coming on. And for everybody else, give Never Surrender a chance. There's no reason not to if you're a melodic, melodic rock fan. That's it for Triumphs Never Surrender, celebrating 40 years this year. Over there to my partner, Hollywood. Until next week, see ya. Later. That's the show. So let's shuffle, rattle, and roll us out of here. Until next week. Always remember, peace, love, and rock and roll. Growing Up Rock is a proud member of the Pantheon Network. Pantheon is the place for music lovers. Check us out along with many other great music podcasts on the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can help out the podcast greatly by leaving us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or Spotify. The links are in the show notes. Or just drop us a line at our email, growinguprock at gmail.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.